Bonjour, hello, and welcome to Close Up on Canada, the podcast from the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. I'm your host, Daniel Bélan. This season, we are talking about immigration policy in Canada and beyond. Immigration has always been a key aspect of Canadian economic and social life, and thinking about immigration policy in a changing world is a priority. Our guests this season are experts in the field and will be giving us insight into the conversations happening now when it comes to immigration policy in Canada and abroad. In addition to this podcast, the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada will be hosting a two-day conference focused on immigration policy in Canada this fall, on October 27 and 28, at the Sofitel Hotel in Montreal. The conference will feature keynotes and roundtables that address broad themes in immigration policy relevant to informed citizens, community leaders, journalists, policymakers, researchers, and students. For more information and to register for this event, please visit mcgill.ca slash misc slash 2022 conference. Today, we are talking about immigration policy and migrant workers in Canada. We are pleased to be joined today by Ethel Tungohan. Uh, Ethel is the Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts and Activism, and Associate Professor of Politics and Social Science at York University in Toronto. She has been appointed as a Broadbent Institute Fellow. Previously, she was the Grant Notley Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Alberta's Department of Political Science. She received her doctoral degree in Political Science and Women and Gender Studies from the University of Toronto. Ethel, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yes, so we will start off with a, a very general question. Tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you got into this field of research. Uh, so immigration, uh, politics, uh, and, and, and policy. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into this field of research because of my lived experience and my family's lived experiences as immigrants to Canada. As we know, uh, a lot of... Uh, Immigrants to Canada, including my parents, have had to encounter uh, some challenges when it comes to settlement and integration. And witnessing my parents' experiences, as well as that of other racialized immigrant communities, made me specifically attuned to the importance of understanding the development of policies and the justification behind why certain policies are constructed the way they are. But also beyond that, how immigrants and migrant communities and specifically migrant activist communities are responding to these policies as well. So for me, it's a blend between personal lived experiences and also an understanding of how migrant communities uh, in contrast to the way they are conventionally depicted in the literature are actually actively complicit in ensuring that policies work for them. And so it's a combination of both that led me to study immigration. And also, I think it's super interesting. I'm very excited to, to read about different immigration policies and the effects of immigration policies. So it's out of a personal interest as well. So uh, how did you actually turn to this specific issue of, of migrant labor? Uh, 
migrant workers because this is the focus of uh, a lot of your your work so why this specific aspect because immigration is such a broad topic yeah absolutely so i think again it's born out of personal experiences as well Prior to immigrating to Canada, my family and I lived in Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong, for those listeners who know, is an interesting, interesting site of study. When I was living in Hong Kong, I grew up in Hong Kong, uh, there were a lot of foreign domestic workers living in Hong Kong. In fact, some of my profound, most profound memories as, as you know, a young Filipina girl living in Hong Kong is taking note of the vast human rights abuses foreign domestic workers face. So for example, uh, Hong Kong, downtown Hong Kong, it, on Sundays, which is usually when foreign domestic workers have their days off, becomes becomes basically the space for domestic workers to gather, right? So you, for those of you who've been to Hong Kong, you'll know that, you know, there's very few private spaces. Spaces are kind of at a, at a minimum. And so foreign domestic workers during their days off don't want to stay in their employer's households because then, you know, they might be asked to do different things and that just won't feel like a break. And so people take over downtown Hong Kong. And, you know, growing up, I would just kind of see this as one of my lived realities, right? But also I would witness, and mind you, this is in, in the 1990s in Hong Kong, signs, you know, in front of buildings like hotels and shopping malls saying no Filipinos allowed, right? And so I think my political awareness was heightened because of my lived experiences in Hong Kong. And my mom uh, was the executive director of this organization called Bayanihan, uh, which basically means teamwork and Tagalog. And this organization, which still exists today, provides services for uh, Filipina domestic workers. And so when we moved to Canada, I was struck that Canada also has uh, foreign domestic workers coming in through different caregiver programs. And the combination of witnessing uh, my parents' experiences with settlement and, and, and integration and also seeing uh, firsthand how uh, living caregivers in Canada are experiencing similar stresses as foreign domestic workers in Hong Kong made me think the experiences of migrant laborers are actually different from the experiences of permanent residents, i.e. those who come here uh, as immigrants, as permanent immigrants. And so that you know, led me to what I study. I think it's important to look at temporary foreign workers, migrant laborers, and to understand that, you know, they have different settlement needs. But beyond that, that when it comes to issues such as family separation, that's something that migrant workers face. And I think it's important for us as political scientists, as academics, as researchers, to understand the specificities of their experiences as being distinct from immigrants. So let's talk about uh, migrant workers and the impact of uh, immigration policy on, on their lives. As you said, uh, we are talking about a, a specific category of, of workers and, and immigrants. So what are the main uh, challenges really in this area when you, uh, you study this topic? And what are the challenges on the ground in terms of uh, the way these migrant workers uh, uh, are treated? Absolutely. I think the first thing I'll mention is that Migrant workers come into Canada through different migration streams. Uh, so it's, you know, we need to kind of underscore that there's not just one migrant worker program in Canada. There are different types of migrant worker programs in Canada. One of this is uh, the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program, which has been in place uh, since the 1960s, that basically allowed 
migrant farm workers to come in through bilateral agreements with different uh, sending states. Uh, they come here on time-limited contracts. Then there is the low-skill temporary foreign workers program, which allows also migrant workers to come in, but work in different industries. So food and hospitality. You could also have uh, manufacturing, factories, things like that. Again, much like seasonal agricultural workers, they come in on time limit, limited contracts, but the difference is they do have the possibility of transitioning to another migration program where they can apply for permanent residency. Seasonal agricultural workers generally don't have these options. And finally, you've got caregivers who come in through what was used to be called the Living Caregiver Program, and now there's the Caregiver Program, where again, there are different pathways to permanent residency. The biggest problem, Danielle, that migrant workers face across all of these different migration flows is the lack of permanent residency, the lack of status on arrival. The fact is, and this is true even for some seasonal agricultural workers, the fact is, is that a lot of employers are aware that many migrant workers want to eventually attain Canadian citizenship. And so they hold that over migrant workers' heads. Because of Canada's devolved immigration system, employers have the option through provincial nominee programs, for example, to sponsor migrant workers for permanent residency. So I think the biggest problem is not only do migrant workers have tied work permits, i.e. their immigration and work permits are tied to their employers, the fact that they for many of them, have to rely on their employers in order to apply for Canadian citizenship exacerbates employers' power over them. And so that makes it a very difficult, very challenging situation. And that leads into your second question or the second part of this question, which is that on the ground, what we see are a lot of cases of employer abuse. I do have a project where I'm looking at the experiences of migrant care workers in Canada and Although right now, uh, migrant care worker programs make the live-in requirement optional, so migrant workers can opt not to live with their employers, a lot of employers require that, right, uh, as part of the conditions of the contract. So what we see then is that there's a lot of time theft, there's a lot of labor theft, a lot of employers don't abide by labor regulations, and what can migrant workers do, right? If they try to hold their employers accountable, Employers might say, well, we're just not going to sponsor your application for permanent residency or worst case scenario, they might say, you know what, I'm just going to fire you. I'm going to find someone else to work. And so, you know, imagine having that much power, <laughs> having an employer with that much power over you. So I think disproportionately what we see is that employers power over migrant workers are profound and that definitely affects migrant workers lived experiences in Canada. So let's talk uh, about something a bit more specific, because you said there are different types of migrant workers. One important aspect of uh, migrant labor in Canada, a major area, is care work, right? And so maybe we can talk a bit about care work, what it means in terms of migrant labor in Canada, and also how does what we call the, the global care chains uh, intersect with care work in Canada? And what are the policy implications of that? Absolutely. I mean, I could talk for an hour, two hours about care work because this is something I think about a lot. This is something I do personally a lot too. Uh, as we speak, actually, Danielle, I gave very strict instructions to my six-year-old whose summer camp starts in the afternoon not to open my office because we're doing this podcast interview. So, you know, the fact that I'm also doing care work while working is something that I think a lot about as well. But, you know, as someone who is also a parent, one thing that strikes me uh, that 
Canada uh, does is there is a lack of support for families with care obligations. Uh, as someone who is a mother of two children, I remember being so stressed out about the long daycare waiting lists. I also have parents who um, are getting older. And so elderly care is something that is in our radar. I have to think about that. And so because there's an absence of childcare spaces. There's there Canada doesn't have a child national child care policy. Canada also have doesn't have um, a national elderly care strategy. Uh, what that means is that families are then forced to think about how to meet their own caregiving needs. Enter migrant care worker programs. Migrant care worker programs in Canada essentially allow Canadian families to privately employ care workers, primarily from countries in the global south, to live and work with them uh, to take care of their children or their elderly parents. In return for that, and this is out of the activism of migrant care workers themselves, care workers can then apply for Canadian residency, uh, permanent residency, after living and working uh, for a period of, of two years. And there's been some changes in policies recently, but essentially these policies are still the same. What that means then is, you know, if we kind of flip our, our understanding of care work and thinking about the care workers themselves who are coming here, a lot of care workers themselves are have families of their own. So what that means is that in order to come here to support their families, they would have to then delegate the care of their children, of their elderly parents, to other women, primarily women, back home. So this is why uh, this concept of global care chains, i.e. the international transfer of reproductive labor, is so salient to our understanding of care work. So in order for women to come here to work as care workers, they would then have to either ask their mothers or their sisters to take care of their children uh, and other family members, or they hire other women to do that, who then have to leave, say, the regions in order and find out their own care worker needs um, in order to, to support their family. So it becomes this international transfer of care. And I recognize that, you know, when I talk about caregiving programs, I recognize that, you know, a lot of um, Canadians who I talked to were saying, look, I mean, what option do we have, right? Like, there is a lack of childcare spaces, there's no elderly care strategy, and the caregiver program seems easy. <laughs> like, why don't we do that? And I think for me, um, what I want us to consider is to widen our scope of our analysis. And I'm not saying don't hire care workers, but also understand that in hiring care workers, uh, we're also kind of being part of structural systems that enable the separation of families from each other as well. Again, I'm not saying, you know, don't hire care workers, but also recognize that what we're doing through programs like this is entrenching the separation of families and entrenching uh, the separation of children uh, from their mothers as well. And because Canada's immigration system uh, has a lot of backlogs, we, we know this for those of us who are applying for passports, it's taking forever, right? Uh, people who are trying to uh, sponsor their children uh, because they've, they've finished the terms of the caregiver program are also facing backlogs as well. So I'm hearing stories of two years of separation before they can finally reunite with their children. So in essence, you know, I think 
uh, Canada's care worker programs um, is very interesting in that, you know, it's it's something that highlights how, uh, you know, the fact that there's a lack of kind of child care policies, child care spaces, elderly care policies, elderly care spaces has led to the privatization of, of kind of care needs and how families have had to resort on these private programs in order to meet their own needs. Yeah, so there is a several big pictures here, the, the, the big picture of social provision in Canada, but also the global picture of these uh, care chains. So it's uh, uh, th these issues are closely intertwined, obviously. So let's talk a bit about your forthcoming book that addresses some of the issues. It's, uh, it's uh, titled Care Activism. So um, can you tell us more about uh, organizing and activism when it comes to migration policy? Because that's really the, the topic of the book. And also how you see uh, the situation evolving uh, over time in terms of future developments as far as uh, care activism and care work more generally are concerned. Absolutely. And I'm so thrilled to be able to talk about this. This is probably the first time I'm talking about my forthcoming book. It's going to be released by the University of Illinois Press uh, in like next year, 2023, sometime in the in the spring. Uh, so the book itself uh, looks at uh, migrant domestic workers activism in Canada with comparative chapters of migrant care worker activism in Hong Kong, Singapore, the Philippines. And also I did research in the ILO uh, when the Convention of Domestic Work was being was being talked about. The book itself, though, uh, all most the the, the the bulk of the empirical chapters look at Canadian migrant workers' activism. And one of my essential arguments is the book, in the book is that all of the policy improvements that are associated with Canada's care worker programs were basically undertaken because care workers themselves formed organizations lobbying for these changes. So to cite an example, in the late 1970s, there were Jamaican women who came here to Canada uh, as, as domestic workers, but found themselves getting deportation papers. And because of this, uh, the seven Jamaican women, the seven Jamaican mothers, you know, were, were upset. They said, it's very ironic that we are getting deportation orders when we're actually doing work that is essential to the functioning of Canadian society. Without our labor, Canadian women won't be able to enter the workforce, right? And they also pointed to the devaluation of the care work that they're doing. And because at that time, there were a lot of civil rights movements taking place, looking for more, more justice with respect to race. And there were also growing awareness of labor justice. Uh, there was launched a campaign called the Seven Jamaican Mothers Campaign, which then fueled a migrant domestic workers campaign concerning the need for all migrant domestic workers to get Canadian citizenship. The argument behind that is that care work is real work and that if we don't prioritize care work, then Canadian society simply won't function. Uh, because the women formed these movements and it became this massive movement, the Canadian government then felt compelled to introduce this program called the Foreign Domestics Movement, which allowed migrant domestic workers to get Canadian citizenship after two years of live-in labor. But again, this was not what domestic workers were asking. They actually wanted to get landed status on arrival. They wanted to get permanent residency immediately, which is still a goal that the movement is seeking as well. And so the book itself addresses these moments of activism. But beyond that, 
one of the central claims that I make in this book is that micro-domestic workers' movements are distinct from other social justice movements in that it's not just about policy change. It's not just about policy improvements that they're seeking. It's also about creating effective communities of care with each other and with their fellow care workers and, and future and past care workers to really to really establish and to really recognize the importance of their experiences, to make visible uh, the hidden challenges they face, but also to provide each other with sources of support. So the book itself is something that I've been working on for a long, long time, and I'm really, really excited to have it out in the world. (laughs) Well, that's very exciting. And we are, of course, looking forward to reading the book. And I want to thank you for joining us today for this fascinating conversation. That was Ethel Tungohan, Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts and Activism, and Associate Professor of Politics and Social Science at York University. Ethel will also be a speaker at our upcoming conference on migration policy happening on October 27 and 28 in Montreal. For more information and to register for the event, please visit mcgill.ca slash mist slash 2022 conference. To learn more about the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada, our academic programs, and our public events, please visit us at mcgill.ca slash misc, M-I-S-C. You can also follow us on Twitter at miscan, M-I-S-C-C-A-N. And of course, you can subscribe for more episodes of Close Up on Canada, which is the podcast of MISC. Thank you to our producer, Blair Elliott, and the staff at MISC. And thank you for listening. Goodbye, à la prochaine.